welcome back to another episode of the Excellence Cartel. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined by Brett Bartholomew today, and he, the Art of Coaching podcast, is absolutely one of my favorite ones that I listen to. But he has quite an extensive background and a lot of different things are coming fine. But most importantly, I respect him for the student leadership that he is. But before we get into him and all that, I got to find out how your last seven days have been, Jeffrey Sue. How's hamstring training? How's the house selling going? How's all in the Jeffrey Sue world? Yeah, everything's good, man. I had my uh, my open house on Sunday. We had about 40 people here. Um, did it so freak you out like, having that many people in there? I don't know. I'm like wondering, like, did someone like take a shit somewhere in my house? And, like, they didn't tell me or like, they just like, you know, <laughs> didn't like take their shoes off coming. I don't know. Who knows what went on here? They could have had an orgy like when I was, you know, when I, was gone. <laughs> I don't know. Um, geez, I know Brett is very uncomfortable right now. Not at all. I don't think there's much you could say unless we get into the subject of face sitting. Uh, that is making me uncomfortable. <laughs> That's gonna fit in just right with us, Jeff. All right, here we yeah, go. <laughs> yeah. But no, life is life is good. You know, training's great. Um, increasing calories again, trying to gain some weight back. I'm back up to a whopping 191. Uh, woohoo. Um, business is great. Um, selling classes, got a lot of mentorship inquiries, client inquiries. So yeah, just cruising along. I can't, I can't complain. Life is good. Good for you, man. Yeah. Business has been smoking for me too. I've yeah. like signed up like seven people in the last week and I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? Oh like, yeah. Oh. Well, I've signed up 400 people, uh, and gotten the black card. So business <laughs> is great for us. <laughs> All right, we'll try to top this one, motherfucker. I went to SummerSlam with my 11-year-old and had ringside 12 rows back seats where my kid was on the aisle the whole time. He got to like literally smack every wrestler went by and he had the time of his life. So that was what my last seven days have been. We decided we're going to do WrestleMania. We think we're going to go to Los Angeles next year and do it. And I'm like, I've never been to Venice and I would love to go to Venice. And from where I'm writing... You know, as you know, Jeff and Brett doesn't, but Stephen Pressfield's been helping me write my book. And hey, Stephen, pump, pump, pump the brakes, Stephen Pressfield, huh? Yeah, we've had him on here twice. Stephen's been mentoring me as I'm getting ready to write my book. I head to Austin in three weeks to write with Scribe. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Holiday and um, Tucker Max, the one who wrote I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. I remember so, that. Um, we had um, we had Robert Green on a while back. Oh, um, I love Robert Green. Now is... Uh, focused on power dynamics. And it's a lot of what my next book is about. And it was really nice because Robert was very, very supportive of some of the, you know, cause we're adding a lot of research-based context and deeper dives into this stuff. And, um, you know, they say never meet your heroes, but he was a pleasant surprise. He was super supportive, great guy. He was, he did his homework on us. You know, sometimes you get podcast guests. They don't know anything about you. They don't mm-hmm. care. To, they just check the box, but I've always wanted to have we never reached out to Stephen Pressfield and I've always wanted to. So we'll have to talk about that offline at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I gladly would love to have Robert Green on here because I love the 48 Laws of Power, yeah. Mastery, the Artist Seduction. It's like that dark side, but it's very important to understand that dichotomy because it yeah. comes into play in leadership and strategies and tactics and all that stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah. that's dope, man. But that was pretty much my last seven days. Business but good. Saw a little Brock Lesnar. Unfortunately, lose, but he came down ringside in a tractor, so that was cool shit to see. Um, and it was at Nissan Stadium, forty-eight thousand people, so it was a pretty cool experience. Brett, my man, how's that? Your last seven days been? I won't judge you for the jerseys that hang behind you, but that's okay. Well, you gotta, you, hey man, you got to ask what they're about. All these jerseys behind me are individuals that have overcome anything from alcoholism, mental health issues. Uh, a wide variety of things. Coach died of cancer mid year. You make me feel like an asshole now. I well, just said I mean, that. I'm going to tuck my ass and run away. 
you're a handsome asshole. No, this is um when when I was kind of wrapping up at one of the places I worked at, you know, I I just had my kid. And uh, the goal was to show my son that regardless of any skills, talents, abilities, or just uh, advantages that he may have in life, you're really nobody until you've kind of gone through some darkness and some struggles. And so uh, this is the resilience wall. And the idea and the the image above it says, you know, that old kind of proverb, uh, smooth seas don't make for skillful sailors. And a lot of that has to deal with do with things that I dealt with in my life. I just think, you know, we have a society and I won't go too long about it because it's my entire next book. We have a society that really, uh, what's it, fetishizes kind of the bright side of leadership, right? We love the yes. captain because the mother Teresa is the, and nothing against any of those. Right. But like we, you learn who you really are and how to be a more effective leader, a more adaptable leader, a more socially agile leader, through going through the darkness and at least a darker shade of gray, right? Which is how I kind mm-hmm. of describe myself. There's always people that are like, dude, you're pretty intense. You're pretty dark. And I'm like, you know, there's certain people that do that for effect. Cause I think they think that that's cool for me. I just never really had a playbook to help me understand how to deal with really Machiavellian shitty people in life. I didn't have a playbook that helped me get through some moments where they were really just manipulative in the negative context of the term. And so a lot of our work now helps people deal with that, helps them deal with the ambiguity of certain aspects of leadership, which is a really lonely full contact sport when you think about it. So that's the nature of the wall that you just shit on. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Cowboys fan. So fuck them. All right. For anyone who's listening, I'm a shitty fan anyway. There you got what you got, (laughs) but you just had Alaska seven days after you just shit all over my character. (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, my uh, the last seven days have not been sexy. I, our son got like early signs of pneumonia, so we're half oh. half awake. We're on board it right now. We're onboarding a new staff member. We're half awake. He's been waking up at all hours of the night. My son, not the new staff member, though, probably. Has- <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Yeah. And we're just, you know, we're in the process of, we really, we were, we are going to build a compound for art of coaching. And then when the housing market and, you know, inflation went to 9%, we're like, let's maybe invest in human capital. So we hired two staff instead. So, I mean, you guys know what that's like when you're scaling, it's kind of full on and then trying to balance writing a new book and a doctorate. So I'm a genius. I'm just burying myself. You know, that's actually a question I have for you today about scaling. Um, because I think it takes a little bit more leadership than what you see the business classes and coaches teaching out there, which is like, anyone can become 50 K and then you can get a team of 42 assistants and 15 virtual assistants. And before you know it, you've just got this massed army of $5 million and don't really work like that. But no, well, I mean, even, even finding, I don't know what your guys' experience has been, but anytime we tried virtual assistants to it, just, it, it ends up being way more babysitting sometimes in its worth, you know, because it, like, and we paid on the high end of, you know, an organization, they don't sponsor our podcast for years. So I'm not giving them free shout outs, but it was like a higher end staffing organization that helped, you know, suss out really good EAs and things like that, but you, that you end up paying them 40 to $50 an hour. On the other end, I paid the $8 an hour VAs, but you end up doing so much translation or fixing that you're just like, it is not as easy as everybody makes it seem to be to do like to find good people. And and I know exactly who you're talking about with like the whole 10X your business, 50X this. The irony is a lot of those businesses either are not around for a long period of time. They kind of get all this money and then they kind of leave or their reputation is super tarnished because they're known as a clickbaity kind of, you know, just ephemeral organization. And that's not really what we want to be. And I don't think that's what you guys are either. No, not at all. hundred percent. But before we go all down that rabbit hole, give, let's give our audience a little bit of background because, you know, 
you have a completely different background than both myself and Jeffrey Sue. So yours more strength based from what I understand, kind of got into that. And then you really kind of went knocking on doors and nailing shit to doors saying, why are we doing things this way? And you kind of went out and kind of just burned a whole new path for yourself is what it seemed from what I've understood about your story. So I'd like for the audience to kind of know a little bit about you and, and all that. And then we'll get into all the good stuff we have. Sure. I'll give the above the fold headline so I don't bore anybody. And if there's anything you want to dive deeper into, just let me know. Sure. So as you alluded to, I uh, was in the strength and conditioning profession for 15 years. Predominantly, I've worked with over 23 sports, worked with kids, worked with this, but my predominant population was military, special forces, professional sports, predominantly uh, NFL, major and minor league baseball, as well as combat sports. Um, I also worked in the collegiate space. My wife and I both kind of started our career in that side of things at the University of Nebraska. I interned uh, in their football department when would have been in Dominican Sioux last year, then worked for uh, Southern Illinois as I was getting my master's degree in motor learning and attentional focus. And uh, then got into the private sector where I worked more with military and, and professional sports. And it was about 2017, I wrote a book called Conscious Coaching. And the book came from the, you know, really the, the position that in more than 15 years of strength and conditioning, you heard just about every debate. And, you know, you'd read all these archives for, I mean, people wanted to argue front squat, back squat, this method of getting faster, that getting me- method of getting faster. And the problem is, is anybody that's actually coached, and coached a lot knows that there are many roads to Rome, right? There's an equifinality mm-hmm. to training. And, but you saw people get really attached to dogma. It's very cultish, right? Like, are you a West side guy or are you a, do you do weightlifting? Do you do this? Do you do that? And, and we were always mixed method. We used a little bit of everything, but here's the one thing that I noticed. Almost nobody knew how to coach themselves, like coach, like, and really connect with people at a highly skilled level. And what I mean by that, because of course there's great coaches that can do it. So misspoke when I said almost nobody, nobody talked about the nuances and the science behind human interaction. They'll talk about periodization for program design, getting somebody stronger, faster, whatever, but not periodization for people. How do you deal with all these personalities? And the majority of my experience was with large groups, right? Not a lot of one-on-one unless it was like fighters getting ready for a bout. And so to have 50 guys that are collectively worth $300 million or more, three, you know, a third of which don't even want to be there. The other third don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. And they have to take their instructions from a 5'8 white dude in Omaha, Nebraska. Building a <laughs> is a little bit of a task, you know? And so I just, I found it odd that we have this field that fetishized training, but nobody focused on coaching. And all they would do is read kind of rah-rah leadership books, or, you know, they thought it was yelling and motivation and it's not coaching is behavior change and influence and persuasion and education at its purest. And so we really went down the rabbit hole and said, all right, what is the art and science of building buy-in? What does that mean? What's the difference between commitment versus compliance? And that has now led to a doctorate in essentially power dynamics. And we run workshops all across the world because thankfully, by the grace of God, the book crossed over started working with companies like Microsoft, Facebook, Wells Fargo, um, Forbes. Our our work has been mentioned in in a lot of those places and we worked with them directly. And we found that we kind of created this organization now that helps leaders solve people problems. So we work with military organizations. We work with anybody that collectively wants to kind of figure out how to navigate the messy realities of leadership. And within that is coaches that struggle with their finances, struggle with leading and scaling teams, struggle with relationship with themselves, right? Imposter phenomenon, all these kinds of things. So 
you know, and really where I'll stop is all this came off the back, this interest in humans came off the back of, I was hospitalized for a year of my life at a young age, nearly lost my life in part due to poor communication and poor medical care. And I just felt like, you know, this is something that's going to be relevant forever. How we enter everything at the end of the day comes down to how you deal with people, but nobody's taught that. And we wanted to fill that gap. Uh, so what made you write your book? Like, what was the inspirational spark? So for me, it was Steven being like, hey, your story is very unique, you know, overcoming a brittle bone disease to become a bodybuilder. He's like, you had a lot of stuff. You should really get out there and, and write about this. So what, and I was like, wow, it took someone from someone from somewhere to say that to me to make it spark. What was it for you that gave you, I guess, that Genesis moment to go forward? Yeah, I mean, being hospitalized for a year of my life is a hell of a Genesis moment, you know? So there's two factors of that. That was the thing at 15 or 16 made me knew I wanted to write a book before I was put in the ground. Mm -hmm. What, what really contributed to the timing was what I mentioned earlier, you know, being in this field and seeing countless certifications of training and this and that, but nobody was teaching anything about how to be an actual better communicator and coach. And there's more research on communication and psychology than there certainly is trained. People didn't want to do the hard shit. And that nearly cost me my life. And so the, the gist of it is, and I talk about it in conscious coaching, you know, it's about 40 pages of the book is, you know, I was 15 at the time. My parents were going through a divorce, just switched schools. My predominant social group at the time had all of a sudden started getting into things like meth and cocaine, which I know we don't know each other that well, guys, but those aren't really my bag. No judgment, but that's not my thing. <laughs> and, you know, I found myself really depressed and anxious and angry and with no outlet as a teenager. So all I did is train obsessively. I mean, it became a bona fide disorder, right? That was how I dealt with depression and anger and all the darkness. You know, my parents were fighting, so I didn't want to be home. I'd go train. You know, after school, I'd train. At night, I'd do push-ups and sit-ups like Christian Bale from American Psycho and, all you know, all this <laughs> stuff. And I didn't know how to fuel either because at 15, you know, you don't have access to the resources that you have now. You don't know, you know, like at the time I got my information from muscle and fitness and men's health. So right. I'm, I'm eating low carb and low fat because those things were at the intersection of what was going on at that time. And I'm thinking, well, I play baseball and football. I didn't know anything. And so I found myself in a doctor's office after passing out one time. And he said, listen, your resting heart rate's 32 beats per minute. Your kidney and liver enzymes are, are, at a, at a very dangerous level. And I was placed in an inpatient eating disorder hospital for a year of my life where you couldn't, you couldn't walk because non-exercise thermogenesis, you were burning too many calories. You were basically made to sit in a day room surrounded by plexiglass for about eight hours a day. I couldn't shower for the first two uh, weeks because they thought the initial shock of hot or cold would send me into cardiac arrest. And every week you met with nutritionists, uh, therapists, psychologists, but here's the reality. If you didn't tell them exactly what they wanted to hear, hi, my Brett, my name's Brett, and I'm scared of pizza and I don't want to be fat, they labeled you as a non-compliant, would just give you more antidepressants and you'd be staying there longer. And at the time, I'm a minor, right? So like my parents don't know. They just see this kid in front of them who's sickly and angry. And so they keep me in there. It's not like I can get up and leave. And I mean, it, it was to the point, man, where you can't even, you know, you don't get to choose what you watch on TV. If you go to the bathroom, a nurse had to be out there every moment, you know, measuring everything. You eat a big, you eat at a big glass table where there's nurses on both ends. And if you literally, let's say you had mashed potatoes and gravy, if you didn't like lick or get every piece of the gravy off and account for every calorie, you'd get three options. They would either give you a boost, an equivalent meal replacement, or you'd be fed intravenously. So it was being in that situation and feeling mm. like, 
a symptom instead of a person that really helped my, me find my niche as a coach. People would send athletes to me that were the problem athletes. You know, the ones that weren't, you know, like, oh, this guy's a pain in the ass. He plays for the Texans. This guy's this, this guy's that. And what you'd find is, as you guys can imagine, they weren't pains in the ass at all. I mean, initially, they just had different things that drove them. They had different things they were going through. And you had to figure that out. But people didn't want to do that real work. And that was the gap that we found. Mm. I think you're saying something very important here where, you know, a lot of coaches in the fitness industry, they say like, oh, you know, this client's a, a difficult client. Like, I wish I just had a, a perfect client that would just listen to what I say. And I always tell people that that person doesn't exist or they're very, very rare. You have to agree with those clients. Um, another thing you said, Brett, um, struck me where you said that, um, you know, it's all about people skills. And I really believe that leadership boils down to how well you manage other people and manage yourself um, relative to those other people. So in a way, um, you're always selling yourself in a sense, not in like a douchey sense. But if you think about business and relationships and, and friendships and all that stuff, it's a lot of value proposition and almost peacocking at some points and and dealing with with other people's emotions and needs and placing yourself as their best option. Right. That's how I, I see business. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to latch onto there for first with the client thing that, I mean, that was the majority of people that come to our workshops. You're spot on. And, and they're, they're people that are not asking themselves, where am I the problem? And by the way, that's, that's a good thing. I don't think that we've, we've normalized that enough that like we, we, we call it the apprenticeship because you're not a finished product. You know, it, it seems like we had, I mean, we had one very well-known trainer that was just like, when I came down here, I was, I really wanted to learn how to get across to these three people that are high net worth individuals, but huge pains in the ass. And she's like, I realize now that it's my imposter phenomenon and my insecurities that's making it even harder, you know? And, and we asked somebody something very simple when they're down there, we're like, guys, you can't fall victim to fundamental attribution error, right? This idea of like, you know, we'll explain our own behaviors with situational causes. Like if I'm speeding, oh, I'm late for an appointment. Oh, I've got to do this. But if somebody else is speeding, it's a personal trait, right? We're like, they're crazy. They're inconsiderate. So absolutely, you're right there. And that's a basic fundamental, like called fundamental attribution error. We talk about it in a lot of our courses. Um, Your other point on leadership, you know, I think there's an issue that people don't understand what leadership really is. And this goes to a lot of the one size fits all books that has been created out there. Right. Like I always I'm trying to propose, especially in my next book, that we replace this oversimplified, idealized, aseptized leadership formula with a new model that actually fits the context. Right. Mm. Like people need to be different versions of themselves. They need to be socially agile because leadership is not just about the leader. It is also about the lead, the environment that you're in, the Mm. greater context and the timing of a situation. Mm. we can go on and on. I mean, this is like, um, I'm glad that you bring it up because I mean, the, the first three chapters of our book are about kind of breaking down that model and what the the research says we've kind of gotten. Because think about it, right, Jeff? Like because of the way we've accepted, assuming you agree with that, and I don't want to make that assumption, but just let me finish this thought and then feel free to kick it back. Yeah. There, are, I would argue that there are a lot of people out there that want to lead in whatever context, but don't feel good enough like don't feel like they're good enough to lead because they've got skeletons in their closet. They failed. Mm-hmm. It. Maybe they're more of the anti-hero than they mm-hmm. are, you know, that classic white knight, but they've heard so many damn stories 
about all these high powered CEOs or these coaches that help players, you know, and God bless John Wood, right? Like this is nothing against any of these people, but we've heard so many of these stories about the old man in the forest who teaches people how to chop wood and carry water that the people that have a little bit of chaos and darkness in them, but still want to do good feel like, man, I, you know, I don't want to be judged. I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to be, you know, whatever we, we've just, we've created a problem. The people that should be leading are not, you know, mm-hmm. Anyway, all right. You, you 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 gave me a couple other points to latch onto here, and and what I was going to ask was, um, do you think that all great leaders are inherently flawed people and have deep issues? Like you think of people like um, you know uh, Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, right? They they have like terribly messy personal lives, but they're brilliant minds. It's almost like the the brilliant mind that's also suffering from schizophrenia and mania and all that, you know, later on in life. And then my second question is, you know, once you answer that first one, how do you help leaders find their voice? Because there's so many different um, avenues that you can go down. And there's just so much in the space that it's very tempting to parrot another leader that may not align with your true values and, and direction. First off, the above the fold headline is, yes, I do believe that most effective leaders um, have, you know, and I'm just going to speak in lazy terms here. Cause I think we understand the context, something mm-hmm. quote unquote wrong with them, but yeah. that's as we perceive it as being wrong. Winston Churchill had tremendous melancholy as did Abraham Lincoln, uh, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, uh, committed, you know, there, there was infidelity there and, and there was rumor that he tried committing suicide. Yeah. I was in the first rate of madness in which, uh, yeah. the book, yeah, Sherman who, yeah, was ruthless to the Yankees to get what he wanted in his March and sea or the Confederates. I mean, sorry. Yeah, exactly. And, and it just goes from, you know, the old dad joke, you know, to be number one, you gotta be a little bit of an odd number, you know, and, mm-hmm. and this is even why, you know, we vilified terms like narcissism and, and psychopathy and all that without understanding what they really mean. You know, narcissism, uh, there's a difference between a trait and a behavior. And I apologize if this bores you guys. I'm sure you you get that. No, this is stuff we've never dived into that we actually like talking about the back channel between the I three. I love it. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. You know, a, a trait by definition is something that is a little bit more, uh, what's the word I want to look for? It, it's a little bit more static. Like, let's say somebody's uh, narcissistic in almost every situation, right? They think they're the best cook, the best athlete. And we all know somebody like this. That is more narcissistic across domains or like it's a trait. A behavior is is a, is uh, something that's selectively deployed, right? I need an athlete who's competing in the 100 meter dash to feel like they're the fastest person yes. in the world. Yes, right. Absolutely. And and we need to your point, Jeff, that we need people that feel like that's a hard job, but I think I can figure that out. The problem is, is we have not learned the distinction between traits and behaviors. And this is something I address a little bit in conscious coaching, more in um, our live workshops, which are now, you know, a lot of the content for, for my next book. So mm. there's that aspect of it, you know, and, and you've got to be able to see these things differently. I think the problem is before I get to the finding the voice piece, is people also don't understand that successful leadership is going to look different across contexts, right? Like um, what makes a great leader in Western culture is not going to make a great leader in Eastern culture, right? We we love in America, somebody who's pioneering. We love somebody who's charismatic, gregarious, doesn't see boundaries, right? But we also know that there's other cultures that want something that's a little bit more calm and patient and, and reserved and a little bit more communal as opposed to independent, right? Like you can brand yourself in a lot of ways, but there's some cultures, let's say like New Zealand, where they're gonna they're gonna call you a tall poppy, 
you know, if it seems like you're somebody that has, uh, you know, trying to express that I can help people and I have the answer and whatever. And, you know, but in other industries, we value individualism, sorry, industries, uh, societies, and so in cultures. So there's cultural context there, there's professional context. There's all this. Now in terms of finding your voice, multifaceted, this was something that we knew when we created a leadership development workshop that we had to focus on. I'll tell you what you can't do because the the absence of a feature is still a feature. You cannot do what a lot of the industry has done so far, create passive learning opportunities where if people do seek con ed, right, it's very just, it's all PowerPoint. There's no skin in the game. There's none of that, whatever. You also, yeah. you also know you can't just read books. Books are great, but books by themselves are not going to teach you a skill. You've got to put skin mm -hmm. in the game. No application. Right. right. And that comes from, right. We all love books. We've written books, whatever. So that doesn't like, benefit me to say that. Right. Um, and then we also can't, I lost my track on the third one. It doesn't matter. So we knew when we, when we did the apprenticeship, this had to be intensive role-playing. There had to be some element of practice for some of life's biggest interactions and moments. And it doesn't even have to be biggest, right? It just means that if we were going to have a leadership development workshop, it meant, let's say you and Jeff, well, you're going to come to Nashville, right? You will be put in situations where you'll describe a scene and I'm making this up. You might say, hey, I'm having a conflict with uh, a colleague. Here's the context. Here's, and we'll say, okay, give us some attitudinal characteristics of that individual. And then what we'll do is just like in strength and conditioning, we manipulate constraints, right? To, to get people stronger and same thing in fitness. You can change the load. You can change the tempo. You can change the angle. Mm. Well, here we'll change the amount of time you have for it. We'll elevate their anger if they're going to bulldoze you or if they're just going to use Socratic reasoning to try to like, you know, influence you one way. We find ways to make it harder. We create overload. And then what we do is we video it. We evaluate you and we give you a 26 point scale of all these different social skills, everything from assertiveness, kinesics, tonality, clarity, to some terms that people will have never heard of. And, and I'm sorry for the nerding out. Like, this is like, I've devoted the last three years of my life and my doctorate to this. So I'm like in the thick of it. And we'll say, okay, Jeff, how did you think you did across these categories? And you'll say, all right, I gave myself a three here, a two here, and you'll kind of explain why. Now, the goal is for somebody in the audience to say, well, actually, Jeff, I saw you as a one there, and here's why. And the adult professional wouldn't take that contentiously any more than when I train an offensive lineman that showed another offensive lineman a different technique that can help him here. You're like, huh, that's interesting. That may or may not work in my context, but I like that. The goal isn't that you're a perfect communicator. The goal isn't that you said it. It's the goal is managing the perceptual gap. Jeff, if you think you're a three, which in the context of our evaluation right now is all, hey, this was very contextually appropriate. I did what I needed to do and I was good at it. And everybody else thinks you're a one. That's a perceptual gap, right? Um, and, and we had a great example of a woman in the UK that came, excellent communicator. Have you guys ever met somebody that just from her basic, their basic manners, to their tone, to their word choice. It seems like they are just the epitome of every book you've ever read on social skills and have you ever met mm. somebody that just, but we had somebody in Spain that was there that was like, you were not assertive enough. You were not clear. And if you would have talked to me like that, I would have looked at it as condescending. And so now my point is it's a long roundabout answer to say for people to find their voice, they have to have practice 
working themselves out of situations in real time. They have to have opportunities to fail. They need to be able to have opportunities to try on different masks, impression management. And it's actually not bad if they want to model a little bit off of other people, as long as to your point, Jeff, and I got what you meant, as long as they don't adopt that as their own, right? Because none of us are yeah. an original. We are all we are all an amalgamation of people that have influenced us. Yes. But you yes. gotta try it on. Yes. I liken it to um, you know, when you're in high school or college and, and fashion, right? You see like this popular kid or this this pretty girl in your class wear this dress. You go and buy that dress. Yeah. You know, you see, you see girls on the street, you know, up here in Boston, they all wear like jean jackets and black leggings and white Adidas sneakers. And they're like, they're like, they're all the same. Like they have the same haircut. Like, you know, yeah. they all listen to the same, you know, so people need to do that. Right. So you're absolutely right. That, um, that's how people discover their own unique leadership after they wear someone else's skin for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then just see what fails. It's okay to fail. Yeah. It's okay to be like, look, that didn't work. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So, so my other question to you now is um, in terms of like, you know, controlling a narrative, how, how important do you think it is for a leader to maintain control of their narrative, their perception and their, their branding over time? Like how, how much does that factor into overall business success from a short-term and long-term perspective? Sure. And again, I, I feel like in everything now, I have to hedge this with context is key, right? We all know that we all know that we can't be in full control of our narrative. People are going to say whatever they want about. I mean, I just learned, relearned this the other day. God knows we have enough podcasts and online courses, and I've given enough presentations on a lot of topics, yet somebody can look at one Instagram post and misinterpret it based on, you know, their own feelings that day. Yes. And, and that person is just going to say, well, Brett Bartholomew is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Sue know this so bad from last hold on, week. Hold on. I, I wanted to say something right now real quick, though, Brett. And I think, I think you'll agree with me. I just dropped my phone. But I have never had someone more successful than me either from a superficial, you know, how much money I make perspective or an impact perspective or a leadership perspective, call me any names like that. Yeah. Well, I've only had people critique me and say, you know, privately say, Hey Jeff, I think you could have done this better or you maybe you shouldn't have done that, but no one's ever called me names. That's more successful than me. It's always the people who are like the ankle biters, the bottom yeah, that will call me names, yeah. you know? Well, and that's true. That's that old trope of nobody more successful than you is finding reasons or ways to tear you down. Exactly. And, and I think this is something that that you'll see if you come to our workshop. We have an entire the the first day is a lot of um uh you know just kind of foundational content, right? Because otherwise, when we get into the evaluation and the role playing, certain things wouldn't make sense. And we have a slide that talks about what influences the perceptual process and. You know, just for the audience, right? We all we've all heard the term perception, but really, what perception is is the way that we interpret our sensory-oriented experiences. And and no two peoples are the same. There are people that literally think Little Caesars is the best pizza ever because their dad took them there, or they met their wife there, or whatever. And even if they don't think it's the best ever, they have more fond memories of it, right? Compared to somebody that the first time they tried it was when they were drunk, you know, and then whatever. And, and on the other hand, there are people that hate farm to table restaurants, no matter how pure or good or quality the ingredients are, for whatever reason, value is subjective. It just is. And so then, but when you say what else influences the perceptual process, and you need to know this because it helps you understand why people react emotionally or without emotion, right? And of course, there is their own self-awareness. 
media, which I refer to media or friends, any external factor like that is like a social agent. That's the term the research would use, right? So media, friends, peers, whatever. Um, timing, their own education, and then a huge one is their own locus of control. So the case study was this, and you can see it on my Instagram right now. I had put out something the other day that just said, essentially it was like, don't be the kind of person that says, this isn't my job. Be the kind of person that helps others find solutions. Pretty straightforward, right? Saying, hey, right. and then if it wasn't straightforward, in the in the caption, I put a combination of accountability, um, uh, accountability, ambition, and intuition can go a long way. And somebody goes, how could you say that? I'm in a job where I'm taking advantage of daily. And there's people that will just use you and abuse you. And I, you know, that's where it's like, hey, this sounds like a very personal thing. And I'm sorry if you're interpreting my message as empowering this person who's doing whatever they're doing to you that I don't, uh -huh. but that ain't it, homie. You know? And so I just remember, I kind of just politely said, Hey, just remember, this is not, you know, I, I'm sorry you're going through this, but where did you see me say anything about that? You know? And as a matter of fact, we have many podcasts that talk about how givers need to set limits because takers rarely do, but he doesn't hear that shit. Right. He just says unfollow, so you can only control your brand to a degree, but your point's well made. You do need to make every attempt you can because your brand is your reputation. Mm -hmm. It's your promise. And, uh, you know, it's what people say about you when you're not in the room. And, and I love that you brought it up because in strength and conditioning, it's very different than fitness in the sense that strength and conditioning culture, you know, takes a lot of pride in this martyrdom of, Oh, it's not about us. We're behind the scenes. It's not about the money. And they always kind of crapped on the fitness industry. And, and what they're really crapping on is people that were unregulated and just doing dumb stuff for clicks and views, right? But the fitness industry I've found has a way healthier attitude towards branding and finances and whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that is because in strength and conditioning, you got to understand that you can be the best strength coach in the world. If you have a crappy team and a crappy coach, you're going to lose. Like you can definitely influence injury rates and whatever, but the best strength coach in the world cannot take the, what is that in the water boy, the West Mississippi mud dogs or whatever, <laughs> make them a national title. That just can't happen. So in a field where there's no purely objective way to like showcase their worth and their value, because there's so many other factors, what they lean into is this sense of martyrdom, or what's called an exemplification impression management tactic. I'm in it for the right reasons. I'm anything that kind of virtue signals because it's what you want. And this came from education. Mind you, when substitute teachers were trying to get jobs, and there's great research on this, and they would go in and they'd be like, you know, and it makes sense. You got your foot in the door and you're like, hey, if you're ever looking for anybody, you know, I'm in this, my, my heart's in it for the right reasons. I, it's not about the money for me. And, and really what they're saying is hire me, I'm better than. So people every day, whether they believe they do or not, influence their brand. We all will do something to make somebody like us or to try to make a favorable impression. Humans are the preeminent social animal. You can't go through an interaction without somebody, like even me right now, I want to provide value to you guys because I know how hard it is to do a podcast. I want to provide value to your audience because I care about this stuff, but I also want people to keep listening because we all think this is important stuff. So I want to give tactical examples of no bullshit cliches. And at the end of the day, I guess if you boil that down, it's I want people to like me and value our work and 
for us not to waste each other's time. So it's always a hedonic reason at the bottom of it all, if we're honest. Yeah, I actually want to kind of go down about your new book because you're writing about power. Um, so you, you know, talking about Robert Greene, the 48 Laws of Power. So every uh day this year, I've been putting the one of the daily laws in my story. And I've had a few people be like, Oh, that's some dark shit, and da 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 da. And I'm like, what? And I think I know this because when I was early on in my career, I was working for Homeland Security. So I saw like not how to not do leadership. And then I got into the fitness world where it's everybody is kill or be killed. Like it's it's a slaughter fest to a degree, you know. And I'm like, surely there has to be a better way. But leadership, you know, when you read the books, you read John Maxwell's developing the leader within you, which is very close to me. But then you go and read Relentless, and it was the first book I was like, okay, so there are some other fuckers out there like me who like to run the score up on people who have that dark side, who have that chip on their shoulder that say, you talk that shit about me privately, I'm going to fuck you up in a way you don't even know it's coming. What they, and that's that's disgusting to hear. A lot of people immediately throw you out as a leader. They think you're not a good person or whatever, but you've been to battle, you've been to war. What made you, I want to talk about your leadership journey. So you obviously went down a road like I did and kind of were like, okay, it's glitzy, it's glammy, it's it's cliche, everybody's a part of the team, but then you realize that doesn't work. Sometimes you've got to understand that there's a, like, you know, nobody likes the prince, right? Like a, a prince who is who is not feeling comfortable. Book. Yeah, yeah, and the Machiavelli, you know, when you read that book, it was very interesting because it was a true thing. So I want to get a little bit of insight in your book and what you think as far as our industry with coaches, how should coaches apply leadership and what should they really understand about the light and the dark of it? Because it really goes both ways. Yeah, this is overwhelming for me to answer because, again, I want to be wary of not talking everybody's ear off. Um, and it's something I'm really close to. So whatever I answer here is not going to be the full answer, but hopefully it, it gives some context. Um, I think just something to know about me. You know, I, I've been a part and it was a wonderful organization. I'm really grateful for my time there, but it was humility at all costs. I mean, if you celebrated anything it, that you're almost reprimanded for it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I own a company now. I do not want this company to be about all me at all, you know? but I also want to celebrate the individuals that are a part of it without a doubt. If somebody in my company, just to contextualize what I'm going to say, was going off and building their own brand external and whatever, and just kind of shit like that, that there would be a ramification for that. But on the other hand, they shouldn't have to do that because let's say my, one of my colleagues, Allie, I want Allie to be a go-to. I want everybody to know Allie. I want everybody to know Becca. I want everybody to love Nate. This other company that I was a part of, it's like, if you did your job well beyond a point and people were requesting you or you were getting invitations to speak, you were like, it was looked down on. And people forget that like, just like hubris, humility can be harmful. I mean, I went through a period, man, where my first book, Conscious Coaching, I mean, this was a self-published book that has sold over 200,000 copies worldwide. When you look at print, Kindle, all that. And That's I didn't impressive. really, I didn't, but like, and then thank you, but like, I didn't celebrate it. This came out in 2017. I didn't really celebrate it till like two years ago. Very unhealthy. Because I have just the right amount of self hate, you know, like I do. But like I, I've I've had to relearn, I think, after working in strength and conditioning that long and it, and even in that company, how to like actually celebrate something, you know, and that was a big weakness of mine. I mean, have either before I go on, have either of you ever felt that like, you know, 
you you're so self-critical and you're so aware of your work's flaws and all that that you actually have to work on celebrating something have you ever gone through that or is that just completely foreign to you that concept i i go through that all the time i know last year during covid well, actually it was 2020 uh we paid off a note early by six months by gm and i who's now uh, i gave her ownership earlier this year in the company um, and a friend of ours who's in the gym brought by a bottle of champagne. He's like, no, you two need to celebrate this. And we literally drank a glass, shotgun the bottle in the back and went right back to work. But that was like, and then we both were like, man, we need to get better at that. And I, I think me and Jeff just been on a journey about this more than me, because I think he's at that point where I've just learned to accept like my kids, I'll celebrate all their victories. Keegan gets a, a, a B. I'm like, hell yeah, you got to be in something you sucked at. For me, I'm like, if I write like 500 words, I go back and find four words that sucked and weren't wordsmith right in my book. I'm like, I'm an idiot. I hate my life. And I'm not celebrating the fact that I actually sat down and wrote 500 words every day. So it's different. But I'd like to hear Jeff's take on it. Um, I don't think I've ever had a problem with celebrating wins, but I do have a problem with feeling not good enough. Yeah. And always beating yeah. myself up. I'm my worst critic. People probably don't know how how bad I can get in my own head. But yeah, I'll, I'll buy things here and there to, to make myself feel better. You know, yeah, I think but I only just got that. good at that in the last two years. And and it's like, I think sometimes it comes to identifying like my next book. You know, I, I've had to identify what success looks like to me. Success with that book probably comes down to 50% of people really enjoying it that know what we've been. The, the person it's written for is a person that knows what we've been fed about leadership is generally a load of shit. That it's really a lot harder and a lot darker and 100%. a lot better than if somebody doesn't like that, they're going to hate it. So, you know, conscious coaching, there was a lot of rallying around because people were like, finally, a book about people and this. And yes, we're tired of the sets and reps. But like this next book, I just have a feeling people are really, you know, it's going to have strong reactions. And that just, and I'm trying to get this one is with a publisher, um, you know, but I'm trying, I think I, it terrifies me because when we signed the deal and I got the advance, my wife's like, do you want to celebrate? I'm like, I'll celebrate when the book's done. And that's not me being like, cool, I'll celebrate when it's done. That's me being like, yo, I'm terrified this is going to be a crap book, you know, because ah, I'm, yeah, I get that, dude. I'm really good at speaking to it in person and presenting on it, but writing, especially just right now at this phase of my life where there's tons of distractions, there's business and all this, it's tough. I'm better. It's just nerve wracking. But to get to your point, you know, when it, when it comes to this and the darkness, getting back to leadership and, and I'll even paraphrase some of what we talk about, you know, in the book is, you know, when you look at the role of power, like leadership in the real world, and, and you mentioned Machiavelli, right? People always think when they hear the term power and manipulation, oh my God, Machiavelli, heartlessness, you know, and, and I don't blame them, right? Because we've had so many protagonistic reductionisms of what leadership is, but all, all power really is, is the capacity. And this is a definition provided by Gary Uckel. It's the capacity to create change in one's psychological environment. Now, the key term there is capacity. Much like in fitness, right? There's potential energy and kinetic energy. If I'm standing up for any of my physiology nerds and I load down through a counter movement to get ready to jump, I have potential energy stored in the tendons and tissues and whatever. But if I just stay down there without utilizing the stretch shortening cycle, some of that is dissipated and lost, right? Like in that non-counter movement example. So just because I have a certain kind of power, say it's a resource power, I have a lot of land, I have a lot of money. That doesn't mean it gets turned into influence. 
So influence is your actual ability, not the capacity, the ability to create change. So if somebody has power in a certain context, and in my next book, we talk about nine to 10, it depends what makes the cut, different power bases. Their ability to be successful, irrespective of the context, depends on them matching the right influence tactic with it. So let's say just influence tactic, right? And there are things we do every day. So this isn't meant to be mind-blowing, but we've got to give language to that stuff. Um, there was a time where I couldn't get this athlete to foam roll and take care of himself, right? Young rookie, nobody's going to bug, you know, I, like I got shit figured out. But he always talked about wanting to get a Super Bowl ring. So Jeff, nothing I could say to this dude was getting him to go. Just he knows better, blah, blah, blah. But all of a sudden, I was able to reach over to two guys that had Super Bowl rings, and I go, hey, can you get Captain Dickhead under control and go tell him why he didn't pay attention to recovery? He goes over there, they go over there, and they get him to do it. That's that's just a coalition tactic. That's social proof. That's power in numbers. Okay. Another tactic could be an ingratiation tactic. If you've ever met somebody that... Um, you know, they, they, they're very complimentary to you. Oh, Jeff read your last book, man. It's genius. Love it. And then, you know, there's always a favor coming after there. That's an ingredient. <laughs> Sounds like half the fitness industry. Yeah. But on the other end, just like leadership has bright and dark, so do these tactics. So that's a bad use of ingratiation. A good use is just humor. If Jeff Sue tells me a joke and I laugh and it's like that, cool, that, that improves your likability and that improves referent power. You know, on the other hand, let's look at like a pressure tactic. Well, you hear that term. That sounds like a bad tactic, but you have a deadline for your book, don't you, Jeff? Yeah. Once I uh, arrive in Austin, I got one year to get it done. And is that a good thing that you have that deadline? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Parking law otherwise, right? Work will expand to fit the time allowed for it. Mm -hmm. So it's a, the book is basically about power literacy and helping people understand that there are so many different kinds of power. And even if you don't think you're, you have this kind of power, um, you're a leader in your organization or you got a lot of money. If you can help the underdogs of the world, figure out the right power bases and the right tactics to use at the right moment, man, that's very, very empowering. And even look at the term manipulate. I think you guys will like this. If you right now, anybody listening and, and fact check me on this, if you go to Google right now, if you don't, if you go to Google and you type in manipulate definition, all right. If you just type that in, the very first thing that comes up through Oxford is to handle or control a tool mechanism, typically in a skillful manner, synonym, yep. operate, handle, work, control. Is it really all these words that are bad and dark, or is it our misinterpretation of them in the context? I think you guys know the answer. Mm -hmm. and that's the problem. And I'll shut up after this. You have Vladimir Putin and people like that that will utilize power and all this they've got this playbook and they're shitheads but then the good people don't want to use the same playbook for the right reasons in the right way so who do you think generally wins out in the world mm. yeah no doubt dog no doubt on that one Absolutely. um jeff do you have a question do you want me to take it down a road because i was going to ask him uh, unless you have something to go a different way i wanted to ask him what he felt coaches should understand about leadership before they scale their businesses because it's like a coach will immediately get in the space. They'll build something before you know it. They're trying to get 10 coaches underneath them and then everything falls apart. Do you have a question that goes a different way, Jeff, or do you want them to go with that one? No, go with that one. That's cool. Fine. All right. Then you got one to think about next one. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, right, besides the obvious of having like an actual mission and vision and, and thinking not just who for, but also for what, mm. like when we started Art of Coaching, we made a very clear distinction that this is not just going to be for strength coaches or fitness professionals, just because I was in strength and conditioning and Liz, my wife was in fitness, because we knew that the bigger market here is the like people in the leadership market, which what are their choices right now, guys, going to motivational rah-rah seminars or getting the shit scared out of them by former military that tell them if they don't wake up at 4 a.m., they're not going to accomplish success. Like somewhere in the middle of being really motivated and really freaked out, I still need to know what to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's very true. So we're like, and that again, that's nothing against anybody. It's just know your audience. I knew that there was an audience out there that wanted to take an informed approach, but still have hands-on tactics. And then I'm like, all right, well, how does this inform our branding? And, and the, the term we use for our branding in Art of Coaching is sophisticated grit. Everything should look sharp and professional, but there's still an edginess and imperfection to it because we want a relatable brand, something that people want to be around and represent, right? Whether it's they feel good about the color schemes or the slides look really sharp, but you know it's sophisticated. So I think aside from knowing who is your audience, um, do you understand that just because there's a gap in the market, that does not mean there's a market in the gap. So I had to wonder... Is there a world out there that really wants to learn how to be a better communicator? Even because when, when you look at effective leadership and effective coaching, it boils down to social agility, more effective communication and understanding of human behavior. But how many people do you guys know wake up and are like, my God, I want to be a better communicator today. You know, like nobody Not wakes many. up. Right. But what they do say, and here's the lesson for people listening is, I want to waste less time, have less drama in my life, get more shit done and have better relationships or some permutation of those things. So mm -hmm. we have to make sure that people see what we do, not as, oh, you're a communication company. No, we're a company that helps with the messy realities of leadership and people and power dynamics. And so I think people, sometimes you're too close to your organization and you're not thinking, uh, you're thinking more about who you are in your own mind as opposed to, what problem do you solve? What's the job to be done? What's the thing behind the thing behind the thing? Why are people going to come to you? So, you know, finances, mission, vision, what the core of your business actually is, just because you're in a market segment, you know, it's Porter's Five Forces. Like, where do you exist? You can't be Walmart, Costco, Target, and Aldi at the same time. I agree. You can't. And, and that was something that we struggled with because our services are quote unquote expensive for the strength and conditioning realm, because it's a field that, I mean, you can go to a clinic and listen to 12 speakers for $60. Sorry guys, that's not our experience. Like, you know, we're doing something a little bit more bespoke, hands-on in depth, whatever. But on the leadership side, when we go work with like Wells Fargo or this and that, we're very cheap. And some of this was my naivete in the market, right? Like I, I would go speak somewhere and let's say it was $5,000 and you'd get like the university of Notre Dame. That'd be like, ah, you know, cause they're used to getting strength coaches in there that for $300, just so they can say they spoke at Notre Dame and you know, whatever. <laughs> and then I remember, you know, like we had got turned down for this proposal and I told my wife, I'm like, I'm about to lose my effing mind. The next day a company called and goes, we'll give you $10,000 for 60 minutes, first class and in this hotel. And that was in a completely different space. And I'm like, this is why our audience can't just be strength and conditioning and fitness because there's a broader market out there that values this 
to an entirely different degree. And that's medical, medical, especially, right? I don't have to explain to them why it's $8,000 for me to be gone for three days. You know, when the reality is they just paid 15 million in a lawsuit because one of their best doctors had a bad patient uh, doctor interaction and they sued them due to essentially what came down to poor bedside manner. Like, think about that. You know, people, people don't know the difference between cost and value. If Jeff Sue has something and he's like, it's $10,000, I need mm. to look at that and be like, what could that, if let's say Jeff Sue's like, Hey Brad, I want to be a business coach. Uh, like for you, I want to help you blah, 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 blah. And I'm just getting started. Mm-hmm. Guys, I don't know if you have one time I wasted $4,000 as simple as this. I might as well have taken money, eaten it and thrown it on the floor paying a IP attorney $4,000 to tell me I couldn't trademark something. Oh, geez. You know, and, and there were, there were so many situations, you know, I remember somebody trying to rip us off for a website saying this will be 10,000. Think of all the bad advice most people could avoid if yeah. they just invest on the front end and quit being penny wise <laughs> dollar foolish. Man, you're speaking to my heart here because I'll tell you, I do um, mentorships with coaches in the industry and I am not cheap. I'm about 2000 to $3,000 per month. And I bet you're and, worth it. And, and the people who come to me, they're like, oh my God, I've tried this. I've tried that. I'm like 60K deep in some sort of like coaching, like institute, like cult or whatever. And I just wasted my money. Now I'm finally ready. Can you help me? And I'm like, well, if you just paid me in the beginning, when I first started, I wasn't two or $3,000. I could have helped you. Yeah. You know? So I, that, that just makes me light up that you, you've said that and you understand that because yeah, I'm not for everyone. No, and you should I'm be. agreed. Yeah. Our coalition program, you know, it can go anywhere from eight ninety nine to to eleven hundred a month, and it's six months of group based mentoring with other entrepreneurial minded coaches. Mm-hmm. Man, you, you get in that for six months, and you're going to tell me that you don't make that money back just yeah. from other yeah. coaches that have made mistakes. And and I feel like that I struggled with that for a while because again, strength and conditioning, they're just. Here's the thing, like there wasn't anybody else that crossed over from that realm. Now you mentioned Tim Grover, right? Like. I view that a little bit differently, right? He made his name predominantly off of like Jordan and Kobe. Right. But there weren't a lot of people that were like collegiate strength coaches. And like, I had nobody to look up to, you know, who my mentor was like in a weird way, like an aspirational mentor is I looked at people like, um, I had this one slide and it had like Eminem 50 cent and Dr. Dre and nobody understood it at first. And I go, hear me out. Eminem, if you're a hip hop head, and this has nothing to do with, don't get into the controversial nature of lyrics and whatever. Mm. That dude is a craftsman. The way that he combines the syllables and even on the song Mockingbird, how he takes multiple syllables and they hit on every drum beat when the snare, like everything is meticulous if you know anything about him. He's obsessive. So from a craftsman standpoint, I loved that. Then you had Dr. Dre and 50 Cent who both started as rappers. Dr. Dre really as a DJ then a rapper, then an entrepreneur, right? And I'm like, that's the kind of career I want. I, I'm always a coach, right? I, just because I don't coach athletes constantly anymore doesn't mean I'm not a coach. A coach means you're a guide and you're a mentor. But I knew that as much as I love the weight room, as much as I love teaching speed and agility, I like helping people solve some of their biggest problems more. And so when I looked at mentors, I was like, look at all these people that have crossed over. You know, I have a dentist, that he used to just be a dentist. Now he owns three dental practices. Nobody calls him a fucking sellout. You know what I mean? Nobody calls this guy a sellout. But in strength and conditioning, if you had a book, like that first year, I took a lot of heat. And then you know what happened? COVID. And then you know what? A bunch of other people were like, hey, dude, 
uh, I'd like to start my own thing too, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> you're like, you don't need to be ashamed that you want to make a bigger impact and scale that. That's not, be ashamed if you're a shithead that's giving people bad advice and charging them out the wazoo. Mm. But we all pay for the sins of our fathers metaphorically, right? Like we all pay for the people out there that are jackasses selling people snake oil and not being conscientious. We pay for that. Correct. Yep. hundred percent. Right. I have, I have one more question and then Jeff, I think we have to. Yeah, we got like, I got one more. I want to ask him and then loud connect. So that works. I'm like, sweat. You guys got me riled. I'm sweating. That's the best kind of podcast. We were dripping in at the end of it, bro. What, you want to sit on my face now? Serious question. Serious question. Oh, oh, that was good. Listen, in the spirit of, you know, scaling and, um, you know, you know, growing impact and, and all that stuff, right? A, a, a large struggle, at least for me, is to determine how much is enough and when can I be happy? You know, when can I relax? So in your experience and the, the great people that you've worked with, what are some key pieces of advice that you can give me and others here to know when to rest and when to push and, and when might be, you know, a good time to just maintain and sit back and be like, Hey, I've done it. You know, I'm good. Yeah. That's a really great question. And I know it's one that when we ask people at our brand builder events to fill out, they always struggle with, I think one, let's not lose sight of the fact that if you're even asking yourself that you're ahead of the game, right? Like what is enough for me? Like I know, and sorry if this makes you guys look down on me. I don't need to be a billionaire to be happy. <laughs> I don't want to be. I don't want my life to I relate. Be, nope, I agree. I, I don't either. I don't want bad, I don't want bad life. You know what I mean? If I win the lottery, cool, that's something else. But like I don't want to have to be the person I would need to be and sacrifice my health and everything to the point to be that. Or I would just have to like, you know, you'd have to kind of go the software route and the tech route, you know. Yes. And, yes. and I don't need to do that. Uh, that's not what I want to do. And so I know that I, I want Art of Coaching to be a multi-million dollar company. I don't want it to have like a thousand employees. So you just start really broad, right? Just start really, I don't need to be like, oh, I need 20 employees. Just tell me what you don't want first. Like if we all go out to lunch and I say, what do you guys want to eat? That's an awful question. Let's say, what do you not want to eat? I do not want lasagna. I do not want, okay, now we're somewhere. So I think just putting some broad numbers down is number one. Mm. Um, two, when you think about this stuff, it's like, you know, you, you have to remember that balance, work-life balance will never exist. Things happen in seasons. You yes. know, they do. Like right now, I might as well be in season. I'm trying to do a book, a doctorate, all this, and I'm failing. I'm, I'm right. I probably haven't written really in like four weeks, whatever, but we just had a massive course sale. I was writing in our newsletter. We were crushing our newsletter. So I haven't written my book and my doctorate in four to five weeks, but I've been going all out in my business. And in another month or so, it'll slow down a little bit and I can catch up to that. But you have to have these realistic expectations where I would walk away from a day feeling like a piece of shit. If I didn't, as Jeff alluded to, write my 500 words here, make a look. I have to look at my doctoral professor in the eye tomorrow, guys, and be like, I didn't get any writing done the last four weeks. Sorry, man, my kid had pneumonia and I'm running a business. And then I'm like, fuck, is that an excuse? But uh -huh. here's the thing. Some excuses are legit. If you had to cancel today's podcast because you were literally vomiting and growing a third, you know, arm out of your eye socket, man, that just is what it is. You know what I mean? So I think too, you have to understand that there's going to be seasons and, and that's going to impact your scaling too. The last thing I'd say is just like, man, um, once you figured out what is enough or you have an idea of what is enough and you understand that you're never really going to catch up, you need to remember that like just we're never satisfied. 
I have a shirt and I joke that it's the family motto, always grateful, never satisfied. So at some point you just got to be like, yo, this is enough. Like this will be my second book. I don't want to write another book for a while. I've co-authored four. If I write another book, it's a children's book. Um, I've written, I've written, I've done, I've created three online courses, four workshops, all this stuff. And that's within just five years. That's enough for a while. So when we hired on this new employee directly to your point, Jeff, he's our director of business development. I said, Nate, you don't have to worry about us creating a bunch more products in 2023. We have more than enough right now. What we need is you to push our product. So just remember, the answer isn't always more. Your business might not have a supply problem or a demand problem. At some point, it's going to have a distribution problem, you know, and, and that's what a lot of people deal with right now. So know what is enough. Understand there's phases. I think that's, does anybody watch the Marvel movies? Mm-hmm. Watch a little bit of them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Get the idea that these things happen in phases. You can't make all the movies at once. You know, you've got to test audience reaction. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Like, so what helped me out is I, I imagined Art of Coaching as an eight-phase business. So then it, I can be like, what phase are we in right now? And does that align with my expectations? And that's the curse of a CEO because your mind is already in phase eight or whatever that phase is for you. It's at, yes. least, it's, mm-hmm. it's at least in phase six. But you know where we need to be right now? Fucking late stages of phase three. That's where I need to be right now. I mean, like, I can think about four, but I can't be thinking about six. Now, somebody will say, well, you got to have an exit strategy. Let's not worry about the royalties of the flying cars we haven't invented yet. Like, take this thing one step at a time sometimes because markets change. The world has changed dramatically from just three years ago. A hundred percent. Did I lose you there? No. All right. I just want to make sure. Yeah. Blacked out. We're good. You blacked out. You had one of them old school moments. Um, yeah. I I, wanted to please, like, I want you guys to be like, yeah, it's a great point. But instead, I just, you know, I yell into the void. No, you were just more, once you were talking about the royalties, all that, I get what you were saying. You're being more like everybody's too far. It's like me with Iron House too. The moment you started talking, I'm like, I've already got that thing fucking built and it's still like a year and a half down the road. So I mean, I get it. Um, I want to ask you this to kind of round this up. Um, and it's probably like maybe a two point, a two part in there. What is one thing that you would like to change about the industry? And number two, what is the one piece of advice you give? Co- Where do you see the industry going from your perspective as well? When you mention industry, what are you referencing? Uh, just the fitness industry and the health industry as a well. whole. I think they're all collectively together. There's just all these subsects of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Underneath one umbrella to some degree. So let's just say if you're on coaches listening, where do you think that they should be looking to pivot? And what would you like to see changed about the industry? Yeah. I mean, I'm massively biased, right? I'm, my life savings is in a company that's based on social psychology, communication, and the human element. So I think that's where it's going. I think that, you know, we, we've looked at training, we look at nutrition, we've looked at sleep, we obsess about all these things, yet you can find very clear-cut meta-analysis out there that show all-cause mortality increases dependent on the, uh, the amount and the depth of our social relationships. The worst thing you can do to a human being is put them in solitary confinement. And so I think that while nobody's going to have to deal with that, The fact is, if people don't continue to lean into the human element, the communication element, the self-awareness, like why is it that we evaluate and have languages for training, sleep, nutrition, but not communication when it is the one thing guaranteed in life to make 
things worse. And so that's why we poured an extensive amount of resources into our evaluation, into our intellectual property. To date, it is the only kind of evaluation of its kind, uh, one that also embraces a combination of, of subjectivity and uh, objectivity in terms of it. And it needs to be because, again, the human experience is inherently subjective, like we talked about. So that is where I think it's going. I think uh, it's pretty easy to defend that. If, if, if you have two coaches of equal knowledge and one cannot relate to people and one can generally, who are you going to go with? Right? Like mm-hmm. you want to go with a person that's more socially agile. So I think people are going to realize just like with training, the unsexy shit is what you need to double down on. I mean, isn't this true in the stock market? How many people are really becoming crypto and I have money in crypto too. Let's not get defensive, but how many people are really becoming crypto billionaires versus, you know what? Invest in the S and P 500 make some smart bets and be smart with your taxes and your overall finances. A lot more people are going to find success with that, just like they are with squats, pull-ups, RDLs, and as opposed to single leg isometric upside down whoopsie doos. Like the basics are the sexy things. Hone in on them because you're not as good as you think you are. Um, what I wish people would understand is we need more people in this industry to, uh, God, guys, how do I say this? To be more professional. I think I told you earlier on when I went to one of these tech companies and I presented and they said, we thought you were going to be like, you know, some shouting personal trainer or whatever. People are not, you know, when doctors cross over and military crosses over and people in other industries cross over, there's stigmas, but they're not the same as what we have to overcome. I want more people in the leadership or the strength and conditioning space and the fitness space to move into the leadership realm. And we offer an umbrella to do that. People can come teach under art of coaching. I don't want to do this thing where like, you know, we create endless amounts of competition for each other. We want to be a training ground for coaches in the health and fitness industry or the strength and conditioning industry that want to get more into this space, that want to be better CEOs and leaders in their own lives, their own business and whatever. Just have an abundance mindset. Quit thinking, oh, Jeff sucks, Brett sucks, my way's better. It's such a competitive, combative insecure industry and oh, I, look I at agree it, it's like this is my end my end statement it's like comedy in the 70s uh, every other comedian thought every other comedian sucks and you know the difference now comedians have learned to get money together they all have netflix specials they all have their stand-ups they co-promote because they realize they can do more together yes yes and so that's that's the environment that we try to really create at, Conch- at Art of Coaching is one that like, I don't give a shit what brand you want. Let's get it together. Let's get it together. Yeah. If you don't want to do that. I really hope that at least the, and I will say like the good guys or the anti-heroes in the industry phase those people out. It needs to be a norm mm-hmm. that you would need to come in with some level of uh, just decorum. You need to act like you know how to do business and think bigger to be a part of this industry. Absolutely. I'll share a quick story for our listeners who, because they, they follow this and God, you nailed it. Recently, there was a, a coach who had been, um, you know, plagiarizing other people's work and calling it his own. And I, I uh, aired this dirty laundry out and I had like 30, 50 coaches come forward to me privately in DMs and saying this person did this to them. They had the same interaction. And I, I aired it out to the point where he had to shut down his social media. He went dark. Because so many people were like sending him hateful See, messages. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad he just said that. He goes good because yeah. I I woke up to an apology. This guy worked for me 18 months ago, 
and had a lot to say privately. And I never said one word publicly. I just was like, okay, I'm, I, I'm a person. I like, I fucking let sleeping dogs lay, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, let it go. I wake up to this fake ass apology, but then I go through 17 other fucking messages above it on IG where he's done the same thing. And I wrote a post like, I forgave you, but fuck you and your apology and go show it up your ass. Like, you know what I mean? That's leadership. And I don't, I, to a degree, that's the ugliness of it. You know what I mean? I was willing to go out there and put my neck out and say like, no, this guy's really a piece of shit. That's why I think of him. And if yeah. I saw him in public, I'd say it to his face, like no different. I'm not a keyboard warrior. And I'm glad you said that, you know, and, and, and brought yeah. that point up because it's, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to hear, you know, but it would be like me going to art of coaching and then going and doing a seminar the next week based on everything. Uh, I just yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's same yeah. shit. We've seen it. We had somebody that oh, I bet. Yeah. Of our online courses downloaded everything and then asked for a refund. And then we found it on their website. It's just like, we have a list we might want to just pass it you can pass oh, yours to us. We'll I love it. i'm dead serious we should i i yeah. literally have in a google docs it's called the shit list you know <laughs> let me let me i love let, it let me be clear it's not people that like disagree with me if somebody has a different opinion all yeah good. fair that's fine but like don't at least get to know me and don't rip off our work our courses cost us 30 grand yeah. You know, to like make any of those online and we cite, you know, we give information like, we, man, just give credit. It, it doesn't make you look, if you guys were like, let's say you started an academy and you're like, Hey, Brad, can we license some of your work? Cool. I find a fair deal for you. You find a fair, let me make life easier on you. You make life easier on me. Yeah. Nobody sit there and be like, you guys are idiots. You couldn't come up with this on your own. So like Jay-Z can get on a track with Kanye and like they, all these other people can collab. We can get three Spider-Mans in the same fucking film and we can't get people <laughs> working together in the fitness industry. Uh, you know? Oh shit! No, I agree with that. But dude, I—I'll be honest with you. I think we could probably go for hours because this is something we all kind of agree on. So definitely want to have you back in the future, and That's and especially after I meet with you in Nashville. But I want to have a chance now for you to be able to say whatever you want to say. Final thoughts, you know, you'd like the listeners to have, and then most importantly, besides the Art of Coaching podcast, which guys, it's one of my ones I've shared in my stories before. Um, no, I love it. I mean, anything that's good, that's helpful. I will always share. I just believe in it, but where else can other people connect to you? I know you have your seminar in Nashville. If you want to give out the dates and all that people, I have an extra room. If you're interested in staying with me, I really know you. You're cool. You can hit me up and you want to do this, but Brett floor is yours, man. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. What, what I'll do first of all is we're, you know, we're getting in the process of really ramping up the stuff about the book. It's going to come out, uh, in, in 2024, but we're going to be releasing a lot of stuff on it. So artofcoaching.com slash book. If anything that we touched on today struck a chord with you, resonates with you, I'd really appreciate it. I've spent over two years of my life just writing this stuff and putting it together in general and 10 years researching it. You know, I'm not going to say it's for everybody, but again, if some of the stuff we talked about today is is for you and, and the underdogs amongst us that feel like you're, you're just fed up with the way leadership has always been depicted and, and you want something that speaks to you, artofcoaching.com book is the best way to get on the list for all of our resources, whether it's online courses, live events, the podcast, social media, just artofcoaching.com is the best place. And thank you guys. You know, like I'm really hesitant. I'll be honest right now, just because of the amount of distractions, I've been slowing down any kind of podcast that I'm on just because, you know, works active, but like also just because man, there's not a whole lot of hosts that are thoughtful and discerning and conversational and I appreciate you guys listening and being pros and just coming in with your own unique insights. You made it a lot of fun. I'll make sure to give a great review after this and you earned it. I'm not doing it just to kiss up. It's no ingratiation tactic. So I appreciate your time. 
Well, dude, we appreciate you. I know uh, I've been working to get you on here for a little bit. So uh, Allie was the one who I was chatting with, I believe, to make it happen. So tell her thank you for me. But I most importantly look forward to connecting with you next month here in Nashville, man, and uh, kind of getting to meet you in person and pick your brain on some other stuff because um, there's a, a group I'll be helping doing some of their – I want to do business theory and teaching the leadership and breaking down like good to great, captain class, just some of these ideas and top-level stuff and just really ripping them out. So I'd love to have conversation with you about all that stuff as well. But thank you for your time, bro. We really appreciate it. Likewise, guys. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brett. My pleasure. Take care, guys. All right. You too.